Let's just start saying some of the names so I can. Um, Yes, just where the Pandavas were born. That's right. Very good. Thank you. So, Pandu, we have these three brothers, Dhritarashtra, <coughs> Pandu, and uh, Vidura. <coughs> so, I mentioned earlier that in the interregnum, in the period when there was no king, uh, all kinds of bad things were happening in the world, both uh, stealing, like violating borders, stealing crude lands, and also uh, sort of certain world leaders bullying others and oppressing innocent people and so on. So the first thing Pandu did, well, first he got married and um, to Kunti, and then his second wife was Madri from the kingdom of Madra. And uh, this is not to be confused with the old Madras. This is actually in northwest India, uh, near Pakistan. Uh, there was another beautiful princess there named Madri. And interestingly, Bhima went there to, um, after his you know, great success in bringing <laughs> girls home. Uh, this time he uh, you know, tried a different approach. You know, sort of do it the old fashioned, reliable way, you know, with money. What he did is he um, he went to the kingdom of Madra, and you probably know that not only in India but in many places in the world, including Europe, there was a long custom of a dowry, where the bride's family would uh, give some substantial gift to the husband's family. But when Bhishma got there, the uh, Madri Madri was uh, being protected by her brother, who will appear later in the story, Shalya. But at this point, as a young king, apparently her father was no longer there. And so her brother, who was uh, speaking on her behalf, said that uh, in our family, uh, we're quite proud. We don't give dowries, we take them. So if you want to, which was interesting because it showed there was some variety of customs. It wasn't just one way of doing Vedic culture. So <coughs> Bhishma uh, gave the gift and brought home Madri. And so uh, Pandu now had these two princesses, and after a brief honeymoon, uh, he did not uh, reenact the activities of his father, Dharmic father, Vishitravarya, who sort of had this endless honeymoon and eventually died. So a a after a brief, you know, let's get to know each other, Pandu set out to take care of business. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, he was this uh, extraordinarily powerful he, uh, his father was Gas, his great sage, his avatar, his mother uh, was, of course, um, Abalika, Abalika, actually, his princess. And so he went out and did it. He went out and immediately reestablished all the Kuru lands. He basically took out the those who were oppressing innocent people and set the world in order. And there's a description that when he came back home to his capital, Hastinapur, uh, he had this huge train of uh, tribute. Because people, it's sort of like, if you think about it, like in India's central government, state government, people with the other kingdom would give tribute, and uh, this would maintain a type of central government, so to speak. Not in the sense of managing other kingdoms, but in the sense of uh, leading and, and sustaining a 
protect everyone. So, interestingly, when Pandu got back home, he took all this treasury and he entrusted it to his relatives. He personally was quite detached. And he especially gave gifts to his older brother, Vrindarastra. <coughs> I mention this because Vrindarastra clearly, as I said, had issues. He was the firstborn. He could not be king. He had a physical uh, handicap which prevented him from ruling as a warrior king. And uh, even though his brother was sort of an ideal younger brother, he appreciated it, but he never really forgot that he wasn't the king. But Pandu was quite generous, kept practically nothing for himself. Of course, most of the, of the tribute would have been used simply to govern, but in terms of all the many gifts he received... He actually gave them to his wives, he gave them to his brother, he gave them to everybody, and took very little for himself. And having sort of put the house in order, put things in order, he wanted to go off to the forest. It's interesting. Uh, for example, the Ramayana, we just have those beautiful Ram songs. Uh, there's one statement where Ram says that when, when he's banished to the forest, and everyone's weeping, and poor boy, you know, you had such a great life in the palace, and beds, you know, as the sheets as white as foam and all these soft pillows and this and that. And Ron was saying, actually, I like it out here. It's, you know, it's, it's more natural. And so this is sort of a common theme in this ancient literature that great kings enjoy leaving all of the uh, opulence and headaches and uh, kind of almost, you say, somewhat overdone life in, in the palace and just getting out to the woods, to, the, to nature, to the forest camping at the side of a river, and so on and so forth. So this was the case of Pandu. He went with his wives, and they sort of, you know, went off for a, I don't even call it uh, eco-tourism or something, but, you know, they, they went off for, to, to live in the forest, and to enjoy the beauty of nature. Now, while there, the kings would hunt. This is another issue. The kings would hunt, and uh, because, again, they had to personally protect the people. They had to know what they were doing with weapons. Interestingly, because kings will hunt, it was not illegal, but there's all these stories where kings ruin their lives hunting. And I, I mentioned this earlier. It's the same with polygamy. There are some things which... Th this is a very old civilization that had a tremendous amount of real-world experience. And so what kind of developed is a system where certain activities that people are going to do anyway weren't necessarily made illegal or criminalized, but... Culturally, they were discouraged. Not They weren't criminalized, because then they were criminalized all of society, but uh, they were culturally discouraged through literature, for example. So there's a long list of great kings, some of the greatest kings, who basically ruined their lives with, through hunting accidents. And uh, one of them, of course, is Dasharatha, the father of Ram, who destroyed his life and ultimately died because of a hunting accident. Because... Um, and uh, then there's, of course, the famous Parici, who we may not get a chance to talk about, but uh, the last great king of the Kuru dynasty, that, that at least is talked about a lot, Parici, the grandson of, um, actually the great-grandson of the Pandavas, and Krishna uh, personally saved him in his mother's womb. In any case, there's Parici, his life was ruined by hunting accident, and another one is Pandu. So out in the forest, Pandu is hunting, and, not to, and they were actually, and, and so uh, at one point he was following a deer through the forest, actually a deer couple, 
and he shot, and this deer couple began to mate. And so at the time they were mating, he shot them, and to his horror, uh, this dying male deer let out this uh, human shriek, a human cry, which of course is, uh, you know, something like that, like that can ruin your whole day. <laughs> so the deer let out this human cry, and then it turned out, to Pandu's horror, that this so-called deer couple was actually a, they were, they were yogis, uh, a young man and woman who were very powerful yogis. And they had performed so many austerities out in the wilderness that they had become frigid, so to speak. And when they had sort of completed their tapasya, their austerities, and wanted to get a child, they could not just do it. They were, they were frigid. And so therefore, you know, so many austerities, so therefore they, they, by the, they used their yogic power to take the forms of deer, because deer have absolutely no problem with that kind of activity. They're quite procreative. So they took the form of deer, and they were in the act of begetting a child when Pandu shot them fatally. They were, they were, they were mortally wounded. So Pandit, of course, is horrified because his life was dedicated to serving Brahmins and protecting Brahmins and realizing that fatally wounded uh, these yogis, these Brahmins, this young couple, he, he, of course, was absolutely mortified. And he tried to explain himself or excuse himself and say, I didn't know. But then this, uh, this the Brahmin, the yogi named Kindama, uh, said to Pandu that you will not have to suffer for the sin of killing Brahman, because you didn't know, but you will have to suffer for the sin of killing creatures who are in the act of begetting a child. And, and, and then the Brahman said that the act of begetting is, is sacred in any form of life, and uh, therefore you will have to pay for that. And you will pay in kind that when you try to beget a child, as we did, you also die. Because you killed us in the act of begetting when you try to get a child, you will die. So, <clears throat> to say the least, this was, an, this was a traumatic event for Bandhu. Again, we have a life that has always gone very well. He was born as a Kuru prince, became the king, basically dominated the world. He was generous, he was kind, he served the Brahmins, he followed Dharma, he had a completely blessed life. signals the end of the fireworks, I guess. So, if anyone has a cell phone, please uh, use your personal yogic power to turn it off. So, first of all, so, so Pandu was, at that point, had many things, many different kinds of agony to deal with. First of all, he, he killed uh, these two yogis, these two Brahmins, which was... Uh, Extremely traumatic for him. Secondly, it was extremely, it, it was so important for these kings, as we've seen in the case of Shantanu, to beget sons who can, who can continue these noble dynasties. And he now was basically unable to beget a child. So that was, so his own dynasty was now threatened. He killed a Brahmin. And his own death uh, might be imminent. And so, Faced with all of these uh, drastic disappointments and shocks, uh, 
was actually so disturbed and traumatized by all these things, he decided just to go up into the mountains. And in a sense, his sentiment was that despite all my best efforts, I in a sense, in, in my worldly life, I failed. And so at least, at least let me be successful in my spiritual life. And so, and then, uh, he requested his two wives, whom he loved, uh, to go back because he said that I am going to do very serious austerities high in the mountains and it, it will not be possible for me to provide you the comforts that you deserve. And they said, we have no interest in comforts, we want to go with you. And they said they were completely prepared to also take up this very, very severe kind of yoga and austerities and so on. One key point which has to be noted because it's, it, it is in a sense a very pivotal point for the central story of the Mahabharata, and that is that Pandu did not renounce the throne, nor did he renounce uh, the right of any eventual children to have the throne. Uh, he simply said that he wasn't going back to the city. And he asked, he sent word for his brother Peterastra to govern on his behalf, or simply to look after things. Now, interestingly, Peterastra suddenly, uh, his brother's not coming back. Suddenly, he's a senior person there, and um, it's impossible not to think that he had mixed feelings, despite the fact that his younger brother had been so devoted to him, and despite the fact that he undoubtedly shared the. Uh, the grief of his brother, at the same time, uh, Dhritarashtra must have had mixed emotions on two grounds. Number one, Pandu wasn't coming back for now, and therefore he was a senior person. You would kind of call the shots now. And secondly, if his brother actually could never have children, then perhaps his own children would take the throne. Because there was every probability his own children would not be blind, and he at last would have the power that he actually wanted, because Peter Oster was not free of personal ambition. And this is something which comes out again and again in the story. So, meanwhile, Pandu uh, went up to the very high in the mountains to a place called Shatta, it's called in the, in the text Shatta Sringa, which means 100 peaks. 100 peaks. In California, where I'm from, we have 1,000 oaks, but uh, in this case, there's 100 peaks. And so he went up into the mountains with his wives and lived in a community of yogis, Brahmins, and performed uh, almost frightening austerities. He, he had, of course, this was a man with uh, incredible determination and power, and now he focused all of that power on his own self realization. Something else is going on at this time, which is again central to the story. All these things are going on. And uh, someone someone else was very happy that Pandu was not coming back and uh, probably didn't have to hide it or conceal it to some extent like Jitarastra, who was not, I wouldn't say not overjoyed that his brother wasn't coming back, but he, uh, I'm sure, was not lamenting at least the fact that he was now the senior person there. There was another person who probably was rejoicing, and that's Kansa, Krishna's uncle. Kansa, of course, is Kalanemi. He's an Asura. 
And the Asura program has basically been put on hold because of the power of Pandu. And uh, what I did was I went to the Mahabharata to kind of work out the chronologies. And um, if you do that, if you work out the dates and everything from the point of view of you know, historiography, uh, it was about the time that Pandu was cursed and would not come back that Kamsa made his own move. And so he was waiting. I mean, he could not do anything as long as Pandu was there because Pandu was too powerful. And so Kamsa, and, and these are stories described in the Bhagavatam that's alluded to in the Mahabharata, which there's a lot of overlap. Kamsa basically uh, seized power. He usurped the throne. He imprisoned his own father, Udrasena, uh, and began to persecute. Uh, he began to persecute uh, members of his own dynasty. Now, Pandu, up in the mountains, and so the Asuras are starting to make their move. Pandu's, uh, Pandu's tragedy is sort of a, you know, that's the sun, the green light for them to start to really become more aggressive in their plans. Now, at this point, Pandu becomes successful in his self-realization. He becomes successful in his self-realization, but he also becomes aware, because obviously, I mean, he's getting news, after all, People do come to visit him. In fact, it's even said that the uh, the Yadu dynasty sent their own sent people to to speak to him. The, uh, the members of the Yadu dynasty were being persecuted by Kamsa, and so he knows what's going on in the world, and it becomes extremely important for him, realizing the danger of the world, the danger the world's in, to somehow beget children, sons who can protect the earth, even if he's going to die. And this becomes his. Uh, Obsession, really, that he has to somehow or other, uh, he has to somehow or other keep the good guys in power, lest the world really be uh, taken over. And so he speaks to his wife. He is aware of the same dharma that Bhishma spoke to Satyavati, that in the case of crisis, apa dharma, emergency dharma. It's possible for a Brahmin to beget a son in the womb of a Kshatriya, a warrior lady, and that child is considered to be by Dharma, by law, the legitimate heir of the throne. So there is such Ampa Dharma. And so he begged his wife to do this. At that point, Kunti uh, not quite as gutsy in this case as Satyavati. Satyavati revealed to Bhishma, well, well actually Satyavati, she had to reveal that I've got a son, I have a son who is a Brahmin. And, and so Satyavati had to really tell everything. Kunti is not prepared emotionally to tell her husband, to whom she's very attached, that, oh, by the way, I had a child before I met you. And no one in the world knows about that. So she wasn't prepared to reveal that. Rather, she simply mentions that when I was a girl, I received an extraordinary power, this mantra from Durvasa. And I can call the gods. At first, she, she protests. She tells Pandu that she she's really totally against having a child with anyone else. She hates the idea of having that type of intimacy with anyone else. Uh, but Pandu... Pleased with her that you know there's so much at stake here, 
And so that's when she reveals this gift, without revealing that she you know, tried it out once when she was a young girl. So then the husband and wife consult, and they decide that people may think this is weird, you know, that you've had a child. Therefore, it's really important that the public, and we've seen the stories of Ramayana, that kings took, very, very, took public opinion very seriously, as in the case of Rama. And so, therefore, Pandu and Kunti decided that if we call the god Dharma, if we call Dharma himself, because there is one of the gods is Dharma, uh, Yama, the god of justice, because the word Dharma also means justice. So, they reason, if we call Dharma, no one can say that this is a Dharma, if the act is done by Dharma himself. And so they call, the Kunti calls this god, and he begets in her a son who will become famous in the world as Dharma Raj, the king of Dharma, for his virtue and justice. And that, of course, is Yudhisthira. And Pandu is thrilled that he now has an heir to the throne. Someone who is not at all thrilled is Vidarastra and Gandhari. Because, uh, I mean, you can imagine his frustration. He's a very ambitious person. He basically has had a life of frustration because he's blind, and uh, apart from the, you know, the disadvantages of his physical condition, he couldn't rule the throne. And now he believes that the path is clear, that my family is going to take over this great Kuru dynasty, and I will have children. Pandu can't have sons. He, his wife was pregnant, but somehow the, the birth kept being delayed. She, the, the child didn't come out. And uh, meanwhile, while they were struggling with this problem, he heard the worst possible news, Pandu had a son. So Yudhishthira was actually born first. And this was like, oh, this is like the worst possible news. Yurastra, again, this is a very loving younger brother, but his ambition tended to get the better of him. And by Dharma, again, by Dharma, this was a legitimate heir to the throne, born before Yurastra's own son, who turned out to be, well, one of the Asuras who were invading the earth. So, Vidurastra and his wife Gandhari, their child, uh, Gandhari from Kandahar, it's now called Kandahar, not Afghanistan, their child was Duryodhana. And Duryodhana, the word can mean someone who's difficult to fight with or can simply mean a dirty fighter. But anyway, he was a dirty fighter. So, when this child was born, the parents called, we were just discussing this, the parents called what are called the Jakakovidas, which means the authorities, the experts in, in birth, the astrologers, these, uh, very, these uh, most expert astrologers, because this was, this was, of course, the royal family. And when they calculated who this child was, it was, they were horrified. Because... Uh, the information they got back from their computations was that this is an Asura. And uh, they pleaded with the king and his mother not to kill the child, but do not raise this child as your son. Do not establish this child as an heir to the throne. Because if you do, this child will destroy the entire Guru dynasty. So... Despite this advice, Vidarastra, this is my boy. 
And the attachment, parental attachment. He couldn't, well, you know, he couldn't do it. He could not renounce his child. And I guess, you know, it was a tip, one of those parents who hoped for the best, you know, I'll send them to the best schools, and, you know, there's nothing that a lot of TLC can fix. Tender loving care. So, in any case, so this is what's going on. Eudasir is born first. And Pandu did not renounce his claim to the throne. He just didn't go back to Astinapur. Because the, um, the Mahabharata says again and again and again that the kingdom was for Yudhisthira, the Peter Paitamaharaja, the kingdom of his fathers and forefathers. So Yudhisthira is born, and uh, Duryodhana is born. Then Pandu wants more sons. Because it's, it's like the more sons you have, the more powerful your dynasty is, and the safer everybody is. And so they, he speaks to Kunti, and they decide that Dharma is great, but sometimes you just need real firepower. You know, I mean, virtue is great, but sometimes you just need strength. And so they decide to call him the most powerful god, who's Vayu, the god of the wind. And he comes and begets the most powerful Pandava. These children are all, all called Pandavas, from the word Pandus, because it's a, called a patronym, a name derived from the father's name. So the second Pandava is the most powerful, physically the most powerful Bhima. And then um, Pandu, who's just loving this, uh, decides to go for the moon. You know what I mean? In a sense, he decides, let's just really go all out here, and let's call the head of all the gods Indra. So they do, and uh, the most spectacular son of all is born from Indra, Arjuna, who, of course, is the one who hears Bhagavad Gita from Krishna. Now, meanwhile, Dhritarashtra uh, is also producing sons, to various means, producing a lot of sons. And then Madri is, starts to really get depressed because... Pandu is so thrilled with these sons, and she cannot give him a son. And so she feels that, um, you know, I've I become nothing, and Kunti is everything. And so she goes to Kunti and pleads with her, use your power for me. Let me also give the king sons. And so Kunti agrees, all right, I'll let you call. And, but then uh, Madri, so to speak, double dips. Um, Madri used her powers to call twin gods, the Ashwins. She calls the, uh, these twin gods, who are like physicians of the gods, very, very beautiful. The Ashwins, they're, they're not Upadevas, they're not like really junior gods, but they are a little subordinate to others. However, they are, as they say, drop-dead good-looking. They are, they're really handsome. They're actually the most beautiful of the gods. They're known for that, and so... Madri calls them, and, and she begets the most handsome of the Pandavas, who are the twins, Nakula and Sanadev. Kunti feels a little like, I gave you this power you call two, so if I give it to you again, who knows what you'll do. So be satisfied with your two kids. And Pandu is like, more is better. So he goes back to Kunti, and he says, um, don't stop now. <laughs> and at that point, Kunti, it's interesting, Kunti uh, 
doesn't want to do it because she said she said this is you know going to be too much. I, I can't you know, have a kid with every god in the universe. <laughs> now it's interesting here. Another interesting point is that if you look closely at these texts, you find these are real people. And um, for example, uh, when Pandu is trying to convince Kunti, and what's interesting is he has to convince her, he can't order her. That's another interesting thing. He's trying to persuade her through arguments. And one of the arguments he gives is that he quotes some, you know, there's always some verse to quote when you need it. And so he quotes this verse that it is a dharma of a woman to follow her husband, whether he's right or wrong. And you can just see people thousands of years later, you know, uh, quoting this, like, you what I said. But what's interesting is that right after he quotes this, she defeats him with her argument, and he says, okay, dear, we'll do it that way. So again, it's like the real world, you know, they quote this dharma that the wife has to follow her husband, and if you read sometimes, sort of like uh, a certain takes on the culture, they'll criticize it for this, that, but in the real world, uh, the, the man and woman actually, had, they cooperated, and, and they worked as a team. And so what Kunti says, basically, is that, look, uh, if I have more than three sons, I've already called three gods, uh, the world will consider me, re you know, with, with good cause, to be a loose woman. This is enough, it's over. You've got your son. And, and Pandu submits to her statement, and that's it. So it's five Pandavas. That's the number, five Pandavas. And um, another extremely important point is that at around the time Arjun takes birth, sort of like the super Pandava, around the time that Arjun takes birth, someone else takes birth about the same time, uh, and that's Krishna. And so you, the Pandavas were all one year apart. Yudhisthira, Bhima, Arjuna, Nakul, and Sahadev. They were all one year apart. I suppose the twins were about the same age, actually. But the other <laughs> okay, so, correct that. Although Nakula was technically came out first, so he's considered the older of the twins. Duryodhana, the head of the sons of Dhritarashtra, was roughly the same age as Bhima. So Duryodhana and Bhima are about the same age. And Krishna and Arjuna are about the same age. Now, Krishna, I'll say a few words about Krishna. Krishna is Arjuna's cousin. He's a, he's a cousin to all the Pandavas. So here's the genealogy. Kunti. Kunti is the mother of uh, Yudhisthira, Bhima, and Arjuna. Kunti's brother, Kunti's brother, Vasudev, is Krishna's father. And actually, it's like, it's like, we chant that Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Vasudev, the short A, uh, Vasudev is Krishna's father, with a long A, Ah, Vasudev, that's Krishna. And the name means Krishna, the son of Vasudev. And that Vasudevaya, that's Krishna, the son of Vasudev. Krishna takes birth about the same time. And uh, perhaps in the morning we'll talk about, just briefly about Krishna's birth. Krishna... Very interesting. Uh, if you know the story, uh, Jesus was born in a manger in very humble circumstances. 
and Krishna also was Krishna was born in a prison house. Uh, Krishna's mother Devaki, Krishna's mother Devaki, on her wedding day, she was going to be married to Vasudev. Her cousin brother Kansa, again this big asura, uh, thought, "Hey, you know you're my cousin's you're my sister," and he felt affection for her. So I will drive your wedding chariot. I'll drive you to your new home. So after the wedding, they were on the way, and Kamsa was, you know, being a nice guy and driving his sister. And then there was a voice, which is, is a typical, typical statement of Sanskrit, Baka Shadidini. There was a voice from the heavens that, with no body. It was just a voice came from heaven and said that uh, the voice said, Kamsa, you fool. You are driving the chariot of a woman who will bear a child will kill you. And uh, Vishnu, Krishna, had already killed Kalanemi way back in that cosmic battle when Kalanemi attacked Vishnu. He actually fired the first weapon. Vishnu just responded. So when Kamsa heard this, he was an Asura. So in one second, it's like, forget my sister, forget everything. He actually, he, he was, it's, it's kind of like his real nature came out, his demonic nature. He immediately grabbed her by the hair, jerked her head back, and pulled out a sword, about to cut her head off. So this is a real bona fide asura. It's not like, well, you know, the voice said this, who knows. He was immediately going to kill her. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't even think twice about it. Vasudev, of course, was desperate to save his new wife, and they haven't even gotten home yet. And so there's interesting passages where, where, where Vasudev, Vasudev talks to Kansa and, and gives some different arguments, like he really shouldn't do this, and for all various reasons. Then he says, finally, look, because, because the voice said it would be the eighth son, the eighth son of Devaki. And so Kansa said, look, when, when the eighth son is born, whenever any son is born to us, I'll bring them to you as infants, and you can do what you like. He was trying to buy time. He thought, let me just buy time, and then, and then I'll figure out later what to do about this. So somehow Kansa desisted. <clears throat> somehow Kansa desisted uh, and let them go. But then uh, Kansa, because he was an Asura, he also had his ways of knowing things and powers. He's, he's a very powerful being from other worlds. And so Kansa basically put all the pieces together and he was informed by some of his Asura associates that actually... Uh, people know about the plan, that this whole invasion of the earth, uh, the gods know about it, and they themselves are already taking birth in this world. In fact, uh, there are various people in the other dynasty who are actually not human beings. They've come down to, to deal with the situation. And so at that point, Kangsa changed his mind, and, and he arrested his Devaki and Vasudev and imprisoned them. And as each son was born, he killed them. I mean, I literally, at the, at, the, at the day they were born, he killed them all. And uh, and he was waiting for the eighth child. He was waiting for the eighth child. And of course, that eighth child was Krishna. So, uh, maybe we'll talk about that tomorrow morning. And um, I want to leave a little, if it's possible, I want to leave just a little time uh, for Rinda. And then, and then tomorrow morning we'll put all these pieces together about the birth of Krishna, how that relates to the Pandu and the Pandavas, 
and, and what actually happened to Bobby. So thank you very much. Okay.